If you're a guest with us, we're going through the book of Acts. It's our standard operating procedure here to put, preach through books of the Bible, and we find ourselves in, in Acts and will be for a number of months now. And one of the things that we're doing here is we provide resources for you to help you in our study. And so the pastoral team has put, put these booklets together. This is part two. You should have gotten one of these when you came in. If not, um, uh, Joe LeBlanc in the back, you can raise your hand. She'll bring you one of these booklets. And these are great for personal devotions, quiet times. Use them in your fellowship groups. You can take sermon notes. And, and this is the second in the, our installment uh, four. When I say the pastoral team put these together, what I mean is Lance Olam, Midtown Campus Pastor, put this together, but we are so also glad to take credit for his work. Anyway, so this is an awesome resource for you. The title, as you can see from your booklet, is, is Unconquered from One Life to All Nations. And clearly, it's a shameless play off an FSU motif. We all understand that. Okay, we're, we're trying to be savvy here on the pastoral team. But it actually describes, really, in essence, what is going on in the book of Acts. You have a church that's growing. You have a gospel that's changing lives. And you can't stop it. You can't even hope to contain it. I mean, you've been there at football games. And gloriously, I don't think this happened last night. But somebody always starts the wave, right? Right when FSU has the ball. I don't, Stuart, I don't think there's any waves going down on in Gainesville right now. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that. And no. Oh. Come on, come on. We each share a dumpster fire of a program right now. So welcome to the seat band. So somebody starts the wave, and it doesn't matter after it started if you want to stop it. You can't, okay? It cannot be stopped. It takes on a life of its own. And we have found through these first three chapters of Acts, that's exactly what's happened with the gospel. It's gone forth in power. It's been unleashed. And, and understand, when we use the word gospel, we're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that he was raised from the grave, and that people who place their faith and trust in him have eternal standing, a relationship with God, sins forgiven. As we heard this morning, the desires of their heart met at the most deepest level. And this message was going forth in power. In fact, we know from Romans 1 that the Apostle Paul says that the gospel, he calls it the very power of God. And that's what we've seen in Acts over these first several weeks. The power of God through the gospel has been unleashed. And you can't contain it. And last week, we saw the gospel in action through Acts 3 as Pastor Dave took us through that passage. Remember, Peter and John have just... Um, demonstrated a dramatic public healing of a lame man. And they didn't do it just for healing's sake. They did it so they would have a platform to proclaim this good news about Jesus. And so we pick up that story this morning in Acts 4, where we find that Peter and John are being confronted by the Jewish authorities who do not like what is going on whatsoever. And this really signals for us, for Oaks, Two themes that begin to emerge in the book of Acts that we have not seen to this point. One is there's, there's organized opposition. Up to this point, there's maybe sporadic opposition or personal opposition, but this is going to be the first time the church in, in toto experiences pushback, um, 
disagreement in the public square. And, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and we're, we're going to talk a lot of bit about that in the coming weeks. But the second thing that happens that is new and emerges in this text is that for the first time we see the church mobilized and praying for gospel boldness as a community. Now up to this point, it's the apostles and the leaders who were demonstrating boldness. They were preaching and teaching and being thrown into prison and those sorts of things. But from this point on, we see it's no longer just the leaders who are mobilized in their boldness. It's the church. The church prays for boldness. The church prays for witness. And it's this whole issue of gospel boldness that we are going to to dive deep into because it's really the central theme of this chapter. And there's two reasons, I want to say, that are particularly relevant for us when we talk about this issue of boldness. And one is a theological reason. On a human level, boldness is what moves the gospel forward. And if I can use this analogy, if the gospel message is the car or the automobile, and the Holy Spirit is the fuel, we understand the gospel is not going forward without the power of the Holy Spirit, boldness is the gas pedal. Boldness is what facilitates and ignites and pushes and puts into motion the gospel movement and message. So it's really important for us to understand that on a theological level. But secondly, folks, I think this is important for us to understand about boldness from a personal level. A lot of times we think our biggest obstacle in sharing our faith has to do with access. Oh, I, Pastor Paul, I just don't know Christians. I just, I'm, I'm, you know, my, I'm with my family, and I, we do our thing, and we're in our fellowship group, and we're in our church. And I just want to push back on that this morning and say, Four Oaks, I don't think our biggest obstacle in evangelism is access. I believe it's boldness. Because if we think for a minute, if I think about my life, I know all sorts of people who aren't in church. I have access to all kinds of people who probably don't profess faith in Christ. They make my coffee. Um, we, our kids have the same athletic coaches. We order coffee at the same um, restaurant from the same barista. Um, we, we share a neighborhood together. We, we rub shoulders on, in the workplace. I mean, whatever venue is, typifies your life, I would submit to you access is not the biggest obstacle. Take a food truck Wednesday for a second. For those who don't know about that, Food Truck Wednesday, the student ministries has organized this thing, and people from the surrounding neighborhoods come. Um, you see them walk over. You see them bike over. I see people in my neighborhood who are there, who I know are not a part of a church family, but what's very interesting, we have access, but we don't have boldness. No one's talking to them. Okay? I'm not talking to them. Okay? I, I put, that, put that finger right here. We have access for Oaks, but we don't have boldness. And I want us to walk out of here today emboldened, feeling a sense of urgency and being empowered around the gospel message. And so in our text this morning, as we work through Acts 4, I want, there's, there's four sections in this text, and they correspond to four points that I want to make about gospel Boldness, And so the title this, of this message is to speak or not to speak, because we all wrestle with that. Let's look at verse 1 through 4 
This first point is simply this, boldness understood. You've got to understand boldness before we talk about what to do with boldness. And as they were speaking to the people, meaning James and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. You know, we often have this idea that if the culture around us is crumbling, and make no mistake, it is crumbling, right? It is crumbling. And if we are experiencing opposition or difficulty, then that is, by definition, got to be bad news, right? It's, it's bad news for the church, it's bad news for our faith, it's bad news for our families, it's bad news for our Christian walks. However, there's something very interesting that's happening in this passage, because the church is not just experiencing suffering and op- opposition, it's simultaneously experiencing support and growth, and those two things are going hand in hand. Look at verse 1, it says, the, the Sadducees came upon them, they descended upon them, they, they, they poured out their vitriol and wrath and opposition. And it says they were greatly annoyed, agitated, irritated. But at the same time, in verse 4, it says, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Interesting paradox, is it not? Suffering and support simultaneously. How did this happen? What was the dynamic? What was going on? I would submit to you that it had to do with not just the fact that they were bold, but that they were bold about the right things. Okay? See, a lot of us may be very bold about the wrong things. Let's look at the passage here. Guys, the, the, the apostles didn't spend time arguing with the Jewish leaders over how to observe the Sabbath. They did not spend time um, debating about where the proper place was to worship God. They didn't duke it out on meat sacrifice to idols and whether you had to eat kosher food or non-kosher food. And by the way, those were all the hot-button religious cultural issues for the Jewish leaders of the day. They didn't go out of their way to offend on non-gospel matters. They let the gospel do the talking. And here's an application point for us as we think about understanding boldness. Folks, we want to be bold, but we want to be bold about the right things. I think if you, if, if you think about this, you, you'll quickly recognize it's true. The gospel, in case you haven't noticed, is offensive on its own, right? When you start saying things like, Jesus Christ is the only way, or that you're a sinner and under God's judgment and wrath, and you're an enemy, that's not how to win friends and influence people. Okay? Okay? The gospel doesn't need any help to be any more offensive than it already is. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. All of us have to, to, to stumble on the stone that is Christ and come face to face that we are not sufficient. Okay? We got nothing to offer God. And that's a point of offense for proud, comfortable, rich people in our culture. That's not a bad thing. So we're not talking about watering down the message. But understand, if we're going to be offensive, let it be over the gospel. So here's an appeal. You can offend a non-Christian over all the wrong things. 
Don't, I, I just beseech you, Four Oaks, don't have arguments with non-Christians about what kind of schooling you should do, okay? Or what kind of movies you should or should not see, or what kind of music to listen to, or how they vote, no matter how tempting those things are. We need to do and take our cue from the Gospels who made Jesus Christ the very center of their conversation. It doesn't mean that those things aren't important, that sexual ethics aren't important. But guys, our culture is just merely reflecting its worldview. Okay? And without the solution of the gospel that makes a claim on people's lives and shapes their thinking, we're going to offend where we don't need to initially offend. We need to be bold with the gospel. Now understand, side note, this doesn't mean I'm advocating that we avoid controversy. Because I'll say this, if, if there is not some sort of gospel edge in your life, if there's not some sort of gospel pushback in your life, if you aren't being an irritant, a holy irritant, a gospel irritant, if you've rounded off all the rough edges in your life, it probably says something about your gospel witness. Okay? You will receive opposition and, and, and pushback when you are bold. What we're saying here in this section is we want to be bold about the right things. Oftentimes we can be very bold about a lot of secondary things, forgetting we need to take our cue from the boldness that's spoken to in this text, which is gospel-oriented. Now, what does that look like? Let's look at verse 5. And the second point is the crux of boldness. We're going to try to flesh this out a little bit. The crux of boldness. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Lannis the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostle had done a great miracle. This lame man now walks, and they want to know what's the deal. How did this happen? How do you explain it? And this is the way they phrase it. Verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? They couldn't dispute that it had been done. They wanted us to know on what basis. How did, what's the explanation here? Verse 9, it says, Peter was being examined concerning a good deed. Put it into our parlance, in our postmodern, contemporary language, what's the deal? And people express this in a variety of ways, even now. They won't, they, won't, they won't quote verse 7, by what power or what by name did you do this? But they will say things like, you know, you've got such great kids. You know, your, your marriage, you guys just seem to be so happy together. Um, y'all are so helpful around the neighborhood. You carpool kids, and kids are always coming over your house. Um, 
you know what, you're, you're, you just seem to always be in a good mood. You're hopeful and encouraging. When people say that, what are they really saying? Hmm, by what power? They may not say it that way, but that's what they mean. Something, something different is happening here. Something odd, something out of whack. What's going on? What's the secret sauce that's going on in your family and your life? Let me ask you this. How do you explain that? What do you say? Listen to what the apostle said. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him. Hear that? By him. This man is standing before you well. See, the way... You and I answer the by whom question, however it's phrased, is really the crux of what it means to be bold. Do you say, oh you, oh, you know, I had a great family growing up. That explains everything that's going on in my life. Or we've just been really fortunate. Or the, or the spiritual postmodern, we're just, we, we're blessed. We know. We're just so lucky. We're fortunate. We're blessed. Or do you and I see this as an opportunity to say, you know what? Um, we're really no different than you. We're just messed up, and we've got issues in our life and sin in our life. But let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about His grace in my life. Let me tell you how He's changed my heart, how He's changed my children's heart. Let me tell you about my marriage and what a mess our marriage was until we discovered Jesus And what's so incredibly amazing about this, folks, any of us can do this. And there's opportunities galore all the time. Because people are watching and they want to know what is going on. But unless you're bold and unless you tell them, surprise, surprise, they won't know. Now when we do that, it's going to shine a big spotlight on verse 12 it's really the, actually the most important verse of this whole text. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud, of course, but just silently to yourself. Does that, does that, is that verse good news to you? Or is that really bad news? Is that a verse that you're ashamed of? Is, are, is that a verse that you wish was not in the Bible? Have you like taken that verse and hid it under a bushel and said, you know what, Jesus has worked for me, but you know, everybody's got to find their own, their own way. Because we can, in, our, in a postmodern, diverse, tolerant culture, which is, by the way, inherently intolerant towards verses like this, do you see it as good news or bad news? I would submit to you that this verse is very good news because it is not loving to, to, to hide from people the only remedy that will cure their eternal sickness. That is not loving. It may get pushback and it may be divisive, but it's not loving. The most unloving thing that you can do is to act like this verse does not exist. You may get opposition for it, 
But understand from this text, you will get support as well. We, get, we have this idea that everybody's just in the tolerance and whatever and whoever and all the roads lead to Rome and all those kind of things. People are looking for answers. People are desperate. People want truth. They want conviction. And it's very interesting in this passage, these apostles were bold. Oh, yes, they were bold about the gospel, about the right things. They got pushback for it. They had opposition, they had persecution, but they had support. The church grows. You find a culture where the church is silent about the exclusive claims of Christ. I will show you a church that it's not going to grow. I will show you a church that's not going to die, that it's going to die. You look at all the mainline denominations in their ever, ever pursuant quest to be, to be culturally palpable to society and to say, we're just into spirituality and no, you know, many ways to God, those churches die. Those churches shrivel up. Those cultures die. Changed lives are built upon the truth of verse 12. Four Oaks, do you see that? It is good news. It's the crux of boldness. By what means? Jesus Christ. Point three, boldness lived out. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness, there's the word again, of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And guess what? We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than the God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here is why verse 13 is is just a real encouragement to all of us. Oftentimes when it comes to evangelism, a lot of us just feel completely inadequate. Um, Pastor Paul, I need training. Um, I don't know anything. I haven't been to to seminary. I'm incredibly self-conscious. And what's great news about verse 13? It says, what were they? Common, uneducated men. They were fishermen who did not know their Greek very well. And there's an important lesson for us here. Because it doesn't take a degree to be a powerful bold gospel witness. It doesn't take sophistication. Um, I venture to say it doesn't take intricate theological knowledge. And in fact, can I just tell you, having lived in these worlds, those very things are often a deterrent. The the gospel's not going forth on the back of skeptics and bloggers and academics. That's not how God changes the world. God changes the world by his people being bold with the good news. One of the things that we've really called you to this season is this idea of one life. Lord, the nations seem out of reach for me at this point. 
but maybe that guy in the cubicle next to me, that neighbor down the street, that mom in the carpool, that, that parent on the soccer team, I'm going to really build a relationship, a friendship. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to begin to look for bridges to share the gospel with them. And some of us, let's be honest, are totally terrified by that. You haven't selected one life because you don't know what you would do with them if you had them. And we can relate, and I can relate. Where do you begin? Can I submit to you, Four Oaks, that one of the most powerful evangelistic tools in your arsenal is your personal story? As we saw this morning, your personal testimony. You know why? You know why that's so powerful? No one can argue with you that your life has changed. They can argue about why it's changed. That's what's going on in this text. But they can't argue about the fact that it's changed. Look at verse 14. It says, they could say, the leaders, nothing in opposition to it. Why? Because it's there. There's the layman. Verse 16, we cannot deny it. Four Oaks, don't underestimate the power of the gospel transforming your life and your story. A lot of people want to get into intricate theological and apologetic debates, and the fact of the matter is they just need to hear the good news and how the good news has changed you. So what did the apostle say, verse 20? For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's a great cultural pressure not to deny the faith, although we know that's coming, right? We all understand that in our lifetime. The pastors in Houston subpoenaed to submit their sermons. Guys, we, we know it's coming. That's, that, but most of us don't live there. Most of us live under the theology and conspiracy of silence. I've got my opinions and I've got my perspectives, but when it comes to the public square and relationships, I just want to be quiet. I don't want to stir the waters. Culturally, we can speak boldly and publicly about anything except Jesus. But let me tell you how God used the powerful testimony, gospel testimony of one man who was bold. You're probably most of you are very familiar with his story. Kent Brantley, Ebola doctor, medical missionary for Samaritan's Purse, contracted Ebola, spent nine days in the hospital, cured, standing in front of millions on national television and and subsequently viewed by millions of others, what would he say? By what power, verse 7, do you explain these things, Dr. Brantley? Did he thank the doctors? Absolutely. Did he express appreciation for the workers and the medicine? You betcha. Did he, did, he, did he prayerfully praise his supporting agency and Samaritan's Purse and all his support? Absolutely. But most importantly, he said something else. And I want to read from his statement. We have the quote here for you. He said, as I lay in bed in Liberia for the following, just think about this, nine days, getting sicker and weaker each day, I prayed that God would help me to be faithful even in my illness. And I pray that in my life or in my death, what? He would be glorified. Millions are watching this. I did not know then, but I have learned since. 
that there were thousands, maybe even millions of people around the world praying for me throughout that week and even still today. And I have heard story after story of how this situation has impacted the lives of individuals around the globe, both among my friends and family and also among complete strangers. I cannot thank you enough for your prayers and your support. And that's where many of us will be very comfortable ending the conversation. Who can argue with prayer? Culturally, send a prayer up for me. You're in my prayers. But what I can tell you is that I serve a faithful God who answers prayers. God saved my life. A direct answer to thousands and thousands of prayers. Thank you to the Samaritan's person, SIM Liberia community. You cared for me and ministered to me during the most difficult experience of my life. And you did so with the love and mercy of Christ. He was attacked and maligned and vilified. But he was supported and encouraged and built up. Suffering and support when we are bold about the right things in the right way with our story. Folks, that's what God has called us to. What's your Kent Brantley moment? Um, most of you are probably not going to contract Ebola and given a national stage. But you might be given a stage in your barber's chair or the neighbor who comes to talk to you about their marriage that's falling apart or the woman that you see in the coffee shop. And when you do, and when God gives you that platform, which he will if you pray for it, don't underestimate the power of your story where Jesus Christ is at the center. That's what we see here in this text. Last point and we're done. I want to leave you today emboldened to be bold by talking about the basis for your boldness. What's the basis for your boldness? Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. E. Kent. Brantley's Ebola was no accident. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me ask you a question. What is your biggest obstacle to boldness, to gospel boldness? I'll tell you mine. I think it's probably the same for you if we just get right down nitty-gritty honest about it. It's fear. I fear man. I fear what other people are going to think about me. I fear reprisal. I fear looking foolish. I fear the claims that this whole thing is going to make on my life if, in fact, the guy I'm talking to actually responds to the gospel, heaven forbid. I fear. I fear. Do you? 
And I know of only one antidote for fear, and that's absolute assurance of safety. You may say, Pastor Paul, is there such a thing? It's interesting, you know, when my wife, and my girls will testify to this, tells me for the upteenth time, stop texting while driving, will you? Okay. She has a fear, and what is her fear? That I'm going to die, um, that I'm going to hurt someone. And the fact that I tell her I'm worth more dead than alive seems to be no comfort to her at that point. <laughs> What's the one thing I can do to give her absolute assurance of safety? I can certainly power down the phone. That doesn't mean that I won't die while I'm driving or that I won't be killed by one of your kids texting. Okay, that was just a little infomercial, okay, parents, okay? But it does mean I won't die because of me texting. I may die for other reasons, but I won't die for that reason. Absolute assurance of safety. It's the only thing in a human sense, you understand the analogy, that assuages fear. Because what can assuage our fear about being bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would submit to you, it's an absolute assurance of safety. Now, here's the issue. What kind of assurance of safety are we to place our hope in? I don't think it's the fact that, we'll, that we pray against opposition. It's very clear it was God's predetermined plan that Jesus faced opposition and death. It's not, our, it's, it's not our assurance that everything is going to turn out all right in this life. It says here that the, the forces of the world were arrayed against the sovereign God and his people. Because that's not our assurance. All of the apostles went to their death a marcher, except John. He was boiled alive in a pot of oil, only to be exiled for the rest of his life. Our absolute assurance of safety is in verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servants, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles. Here it is. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's only one assurance of absolute safety in this life, and that's the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I'm so convinced that we're inhibited by fear in this life because of a desire for something that simply does not exist. God doesn't promise it. God at times grants safety for a season, but ultimately he says, I'm preparing for you an eternal glory that will far outweigh them all, which means whatever happens to us in this life when we are gospel bold falls right under what verse 24 says, the hand of the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth. I think boldness is about this for us. It's about trust. It's about trust. God, I'm going to trust you that whatever comes out of this transaction of, being, of me being bold with my story, with the gospel, with Jesus Christ, is exactly what you predetermined to take place. It's what happened in Acts 4. Because we see that God uses this situation to prepare the church for a more even intense season of persecution that drives them from their homes. It drives them from Jerusalem 
And in fact, it's the very means that God uses to take the gospel to the world. How would God have us to respond to this and press it down into our souls? I think he would have us do exactly what the church did. They says they came together, they worshiped, they read his word, and they prayed. They didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray against the rulers that God would silence them. What did they pray for, church? Boldness. Let's do the same.